0: Hello and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. Welcome to season five, but as you know by now, the seasons do not really mean anything at all. To kick off our fifth season, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Chiang. Michelle is an assistant professor of English at Nanyang Technological University and the coordinator of the university's Medical Humanities Research Cluster. What you're about to hear is a conversation in front of a live audience between Michelle and the two co-organizers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro. Ian and Dieter will be talking with Michelle about her work on the value of illness stories, as well as what it is like to be a literary scholar and a medical humanities researcher working in the research landscape of Singapore. That's everything from me. I'll hand you over and be back with you at the end of the episode.
1: So uh, we're very excited to have our first conversation of the new year. Uh, It's randomly called season five, but there's really no logic to that. Thank you, Dr. Michelle Chang from Nanyang Technological University for joining us today. And we're really looking forward to talking with you about your work around illness narratives and also your experiences as a literary scholar trying to find your way in uh, medical humanities and and especially in the in the context of Singapore where you also run a medical humanities research cluster. Ian, I'll hand over to you.
2: Okay, welcome everybody. Michelle, welcome. We're really honoured to speak to you. Um, we welcome Michelle today. Um, Michelle Chiang is assistant professor um, within the English program in the School of Humanities at NTU. In Singapore, it's wonderful to just to be able to look across A different direction, you know, and to not for once look across the Atlantic and uh, to look east. That's just completely awesome. Um, So, Michelle um, has um, had a varied career to date, having worked for her PhD in Leeds, uh, so just up the road from me, uh, cold and wet and British grey, and then for a postdoc in the University of Pennsylvania uh, before going back to take up her post as assistant professor um, uh, in Singapore. And so, a range of experiences of different. Understandings of the world and models of of healthcare and narrative and so forth. That I think will just make this a really wonderful and valued conversation. Um, her PhD was um, and postdoc was uh, on on the work of the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett, which has been a joy for me because I had to look him up because I knew nothing about him. Just showing again how little I know about anything. She's been recipient of various prestigious uh, scholarships and awards along her way, um, uh, as credit to her scholarship and for funding a broad range of interests in the literary studies, um, uh, and most recently has begun to think about patient narratives, the patient voice and the experience of illness and dying, and so merging uh, deep and erudite understanding of theatre and, and Samuel Beckett through to patient narratives and uh, moving from and including both literature and the medical humanities in her ongoing work uh, makes a wonderful opportunity to talk to her about her work. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome her. I'm going to start with our standard starting question for these podcasts. Michelle, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your connection to the theme of our series of arts, humanities and health?
3: Thank you very much, Ian, for the introduction. I would think that thinking that we know nothing is a Bacadian virtue. So I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I always think that I don't know enough and I don't really know anything. (laughs) So thank you very much for having me. I'm a literary scholar and a medical humanities researcher. So in a sense, I see myself as having a dual role. So as a literary scholar, I close read illness memoirs. And as a medical humanities researcher, I interview patients, caregivers, and healthcare professionals to solicit their stories. The point of doing this really is to consider how their perspectives, their stories could potentially inform or challenge our existing understanding of health, illness, and dying. That's a bit about myself and my connection to to the theme.
1: Could you tell us a bit maybe about your journey, and as Ian has already alluded to, it's gone across multiple countries and, and now, now the work that you're doing and also running a medical health, sorry, medical humanities research cluster in Singapore. It sounds like quite a journey that you've been on.
3: I, I don't run the medical humanities research cluster. Um, I'm the coordinator. I certainly didn't found it. Um, my colleague, Graham Matthews, was the one who set it up, and um, he's taken on other responsibilities, but still a very big influence um, and a very big figure in medical humanities research cluster here at NTU. Um, so I'm just helping with the coordination and um, getting people to join our research cluster, forming collaboration opportunities, and all that kind of good stuff. We, uh, my colleagues and I, are interested mainly in three things in the medical humanities research cluster: um, health communication, narrative medicine, and history of medicine. For some colleagues, um, there are overlaps in these research areas, research interests. Uh, But for me, for example, um, I deal mainly with illness narratives. So that would fall under narrative medicine. I think the question was a bit about the journey, right? Yeah, I started out as a literary scholar, specifically a Beckett specialist. I was very interested in Beckett since I was in pre-university. So I did my final year thesis on Beckett, my MA on Beckett, my PhD on Beckett, and and eventually my postdoc on Beckett. So I was, I would say, hell-bent on becoming a Beckett scholar. Uh, And Beckett brought me to a lot of places, right? So I started out in Singapore as an undergraduate, and then that brought me to, uh, my PhD brought me to the UK, and then my postdoc brought me to the US. The big picture story is that Beckett led me to the exploration of embodied lives in absolute systems that persistently fail to account for lived experiences. So that's the insight that studying Beckett gave me. And after the publication of Samuel Beckett's Intuitive Spectator, Me to Play, my first book, where it examines how Beckett dramatized loss, um, Beckett's dramatization of loss appeal more to the audience's intuition and intellect um, that I turn to a more in-depth consideration of loss in illness narratives. Now, like I said, this is a big picture story, um, but to go into the finer details, my turn to illness narratives is really prompted by a terminal illness within the family. I saw how I spent so many years working on Beckett and Loss and I should have been quite prepared for what was to come, but I wasn't. I was not prepared at all. The experience showed me that lack of preparation has significant impact on end-of-life decisions and the many decisions that must be made, sometimes very quickly in a hospital setting. And this lack of preparation isn't unique to my experience or my family's experience. So there was this impulse um, this desire this drive to articulate the significance of this lack of preparation so that resulted in an article on the absurdity of a terminal illness and how unprepared we are and how how we should be more prepared now this article publication quickly led to invited talks around here the country in singapore it started at my university and then at other hospitals in singapore and then this led to my membership in ntu's medical humanities research cluster so when i was working on the illness memoirs in order to wrap my head around my um, loved one's terminal illness i didn't know of medical humanities that like it was not within my research radar it was because of these talks then the first talk that I was introduced to Medical Humanities by Graham Matthews, uh, my my colleague. That's how it led to the membership. And then eventually, now I'm the coordinator of um, the cluster. And in our cluster, we've run a series of workshops for um, physicians in Singapore. Medical Humanities is not um, very established in Singapore yet. We have been going around um, helping to clarify what medical humanities is and and it is a slippery term, right i mean there's medical humanities as health humanities but mainly to address i at least in my from my perspective to address the difference between medical humanities and medical humanism there is a very big difference between the two and that has to be clarified to the audience and participants like I said, it, Medical Humanities isn't very established in Singapore yet. So I'm mainly very grateful throughout this journey for my collaborators' first leap of faith uh, in, to, to hear me out as a Humanities Scholars and offering the opportunities to, um, that these leaps afforded me. So just now Ian mentioned some grants and projects that I've been working on. All of these would not have been possible without that first leap of faith that my collaborators gave me. The journey itself is not completely smooth and... Like I said, medical humanities is not very established yet. There are two main challenges that I face um, because of this. The the fact that medical humanities is not an established field in Singapore. And this is really colleagues, especially senior colleagues from a pure humanities background who are worried about me, (laughs) who wonder, Michelle, what are you doing, really? And I find myself having to constantly explain to them what i'm doing because sometimes they forget i don't know but more specifically not having a mentor in the field because this is still so new here Yeah, even in my department with a Medical Humanities Research Cluster, there isn't someone whom I've journeyed with. Like I did my PhD, I did my postdoc with, and then, you know, now I'm moving on to a very established discipline and then, you know, I can run to for advice. So there isn't such a person. I rely a lot on my colleagues. And, well, we can have peer mentors too, right? It's not that stereotypical mentor figure that I have in the field. So I think that would have been nice. (laughs) But this is a challenge that I appreciate, Um, the constant asking of what are you doing, Michelle? Uh, Because I think it helped me sharpen my research identity because I have to keep constantly like defend what I'm doing. Interdisciplinary is good. This is what I'm doing. I I think it gives me a clearer idea of the researcher that I want to be, um, that I'm trying to be. So, so that's that first challenge. The second challenge in this journey really would be, like I said earlier, leap of faith, right? The physicians that I want to work with, um, like for example, when I'm pitching an idea to local healthcare institutions about my project and ideas, or when I go to grants, review, interviews... I get questions about why is objectivity and quantifiable research outcome clearly missing in my research proposal. Um, My main methods are close reading and descriptive phenomenology, which is a qualitative approach. So, numbers are not important, really, in in, in these uh, approaches. Yeah, but I also see this as a positive challenge, mainly because the proposals that I've written, um, the projects that I've discussed with potential collaborators. They give me a chance to clarify, to make clear to non-specialists within and outside of my institution the value of what I'm doing as a medical humanities researcher. Maybe when I first started, I felt at a loss. I didn't know how to clarify my position. After I accrued more experiences, and it gets easier, I think. Therefore, I think these are all very positive challenges, and I've gained and learned a lot from them over the past few years. So, that's a very long story to my journey.
2: <laughs> it's a great story and already leads to so many following questions. I think your experience of trying to wrestle with the nature of the discipline and finding a mentor in a discipline that itself is quite diffuse, is it really rings true with myself and with many of the other people we've spoken to in the podcast series where we often talk about imposter syndrome not necessarily feeling like we belong and not knowing how to apply one set of methodology into a single area of work. I think it is genuinely hard because there isn't a medical humanities method. I'm genuinely interested as well in your work around that preparedness for end of life. As somebody who sat beside many families and many people at the end of their lives and in situations of great distress. I sometimes think that we can never be prepared for these moments, uh, and that maybe that being unable to be prepared is part of the human experience because they're so overwhelming. But I'd love to hear just a little bit more about what conclusions you came to about being prepared.
3: It's, It's really more abstract than practical, but there are practical considerations, conclusions drawn as well, let's begin with the practical ones so the arguments that i made uh, or rather the assertion that i made was that do not be afraid to ask questions i my research is very specific to the cultural norms here in singapore but i feel that sometimes patients give healthcare professionals a lot of they put them on a the pedestal and sometimes they fear asking questions that are perhaps perceived as unintelligent or unnecessary or not related to their condition. I think patients, when they are diagnosed with, um, when they're given a terminal illness, the a terminal illness diagnosis, it's it's a moment where sometimes there are no words, there are no questions. But then after a while, there will be questions and family members will have questions and sometimes some people choose not to ask questions and and that could be a problem as well. So in, at least in my talks and in my, in that article specifically on end of life as an absurdity, I asserted that in the concept of Camus absurd, he, he asserts that we are constantly looking for meaning in our experiences with the world, in the world, but the world can sometimes be completely silent. we're looking for meaning and we shouldn't just accept the silence and move on we should try to construct meaning out of this silence we should try to construct meanings on our own so if you have any questions if you need any resources to construct something that could make sense to you that would make sense to you then go ahead and like amass these resources like ask questions if you need to don't be passive you still need to live your life even though it's a terminal illness even though your loved one is experiencing you know it's terminal illness it's terminal right so there's no other ways about it but re- within the re- remaining time that there, there there is still a life to live so so that is the. Um, Practical aspect of it, ask questions, be brave and ask questions. Um, and the, the more abstract idea is, um, as I have pointed out, constructing meaning for yourself. Now, Camus has it that um, the world is silent, uh, the world is silent to our search for meaning. But this doesn't mean then that we stop searching for meaning within ourselves, right? Perhaps we can't find meaning from the outside but we can find meaning from within ourselves. So so this is what I'm trying to, what I, I asserted in my publication, in my article about finding strengths from within and trying to construct meaning for yourself in this absurdity.
2: That's a very deep sense of gaining meaning from personal storytelling and reinterpreting and telling your yeah. own stories to yourself, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I think that's very powerful.
3: Mm, thank you.
1: As Ian says, it's a really deeply personal experience one that, by the sounds of it, you kind of worked through in this academic article. And I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about you know, how well does the traditional form of the academic article in humanities lend itself to that? I'm also maybe connecting this to your senior colleagues in humanities who traditional classical, you know, who are worried about you. I'm kind of, I think where I'm getting at is that, you know, does the, the, the form of the traditional humanities academic essay, you know, is it fit for purpose to do this type of work?
3: I think you've asked a very good question. Um this particular research on illness memoirs or rather end-of-life memoirs is still quite literary. So the, the article itself um, more or less conforms to the, the requirements of a critical interpretation of a text. It kind of conforms to it. But what I'm doing, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a, I I think I have a dual role as a literary scholar and a medical humanities researcher. I'm interested in illness memoirs, so I close read them and I can write articles that conform to the disciplinary rules and requirements and what they're familiar with. Um, But as a medical humanities researcher who's interested in soliciting stories from patients, caregivers, and healthcare professionals, not written stories, but spoken stories, I need a different framework. I need a different approach. So I spent the past three years... Acquiring the phenomenological skills, so qualitative analysis skills, was a very steep learning curve. But I think it's worth it because you can't interpret transcripts the way you interpret literary works. That's for sure. So I need a different set of skills. I, I like to see it as me trying to be ambidextrous. Instead of just close reading, I am also capable of doing um, qualitative analysis. Yeah, so those papers would conform to the IMRAD form format, right? The IMRAD format. Um, so that's a different requirements, uh, different formats, different approach. I managed to successfully get one out, <laughs> get one out. Um, just earlier this year, so that's one achievement unlocked, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, but there are certainly different requirements, I think. Well, medical humanities is interdisciplinary, right? So I think there are many ways to go about this. And I think I'm still trying to figure out what is best for me. I'm trying to figure out if I could be comfortable publishing in both modes, publishing in both formats, producing impactful work that speak to both the literary criticism audience and the medical humanities audience. So that's what I've been trying to reconcile
2: as well. It's really interesting when you blur the lines of technique and methodology. I mean, it's a small story, but I I remember working with a very, very skilled medical student, uh, Julia Goddard. And she took the narratives of people with very significant illness and then wrote incredibly short stories based on the narratives and retold those short stories back to the people concerned and kind of went through sort of co-production to to relive and re-reveal their narratives. And I was very proud of her work. It was a, it was a beautiful and interesting thing that showed how different ways of understanding and living the stories and then reproducing them could have both intellectual and moral force and value. And to, to do that is very difficult.
3: I think that's a very creative approach.
2: It was a, a lovely piece of work, I have to say, and thank you. So... It brings us to, you know, one of these questions about this sense of, of value. Where does the value in our scholarship lie? Is the value of the intellectual scholarship and the contribution to the, the intellectual work and the intellectual world that we live in and participate in as, as university scholars? Um, is it in broader society? Um, is it in the context of trying to improve or modify people's attitudes to illness or healthcare. Um, so how do you place that sense of value in, in what you do?
3: It's very interesting that you're asking me a question about value. Um, I'm working on a book right now, um, The Values of Patient Stories. I deliberately use um, value in the plural in order to interrogate the the means-ends connotation of the word value when we think about like what is the use of patient stories in the medical curriculum or even in in literary criticism. I think that autobiography or memoirs, they are not privileged over um, canonical works or, or pure literary fiction. Some of the key questions I asked in the text would be, what value can patient stories bring to the medical curriculum beyond narrative competence? What kind of illness narratives sell well and why? And ultimately, why do patients write? Value is one thing that I'm interrogating in the values of patient stories. But back to your question on value of our research, should it be should it be valuable to the public? I think yes. I think that pure literary criticism has value, cultural value. It's it's a gatekeeper for cultural productions, literary works, film, um, and all that good stuff. But specifically, it's also, I think, the responsibility towards the public when we think about the value of an academic research. Uh, It really depends on the discipline. I I can't speak for everyone. Nobody has the right to say, to tell you who your audience should be, what is the value of your work. But in my opinion, medical humanities to me has a very immediate impact on the public. I feel that medical humanities um, has that impetus to make a difference. Public experience of care, how it is delivered, how it is received. That is my main motivation. Um, I think that is why medical humanities is so addictive for me because I find it very difficult to tear myself away from it now that I am steep within it because I truly believe that it has very direct impact on how patients receive care. Um, and what kind of care patients can receive or should receive. Now, in terms of literary studies, I think the value is much more abstract. I I think the value of literary studies lies in its opening readers up to a wider world of multiple perspectives, experiences that um, we can't even begin to fathom if we do not open that book. So literary Studies has that value in in its creative output. It it creates multiple worlds, multiple perspectives, and that itself is why literature is so precious and and valuable. But medical humanities, to me, and specifically in the context of my research, I feel that its impact is definitely much more public, much more direct, and can truly make a practical difference to people's lives.
1: I wonder if you could tell us maybe a little bit about the uptake of that message in in your local context within the research group, within the university. Is this a message that is sort of well-received or is there some resistance to humanities entering into that space?
3: I think there's definitely resistance. Mainly, like I said earlier, the medical humanities isn't very established yet in Singapore. Medical humanities research, Um, not very established yet in terms of the research landscape, not very established yet in terms of the medical curriculum. From my observation, sorry, not for sure, but from my observation, these views are all mine and mine alone. (laughs) Um, I think that the unconverted continue to find, or the uninitiated continue to find the humanities or humanities scholars a little woolly They probably wonder, um, what do a bunch of humanities researchers in their ivory tower know about life and death in the OR or illness and dying in the ICU? So this may sound surprising, but this deep suspicion is in fact neutral. Humanities scholars are thinking, what do doctors know about living and dying without an exposure to a humanities education? How does an individual develop a firm grasp on what doctoring means in the face of struggles with poverty, abuse and discrimination? So as much as there is this deep suspicion, this mutual suspicion in each other, I think there is much to learn mutually. The challenge really is to take the first leap of faith by putting aside, like I, I, kept, I keep saying leap of faith, but I really mean that first leap of faith. Let's put aside these instinctual distrust to make room for intellectual collaboration. I want to emphasize the word instinctual because both suspicions right? Um, from the healthcare worker's perspective and from the humanities scholar's perspective. These are, in fact, disciplinary prejudices that prevent meaningful interaction and connection between humanities research and medicine. I think that medical humanities should be collaborative. There is enormous potential in what humanities scholars and healthcare professionals can accomplish together as a team, as attested by um, the more established medical humanities communities out there. That is one particular barrier right now in the medical humanities landscape in Singapore.
2: You're speaking to, though, very generic issues of strong disciplinary boundaries between medicine and the humanities that are are global. And I think that you're representing very, you know, a, a very global dialogue. And yes, there are some amazing programs that we that we all all know of and we've interviewed scholars from Colombia like Santani Descupture and, and Rich Sharon who you know who obviously lead in in, in astonishing narrative medicine programs um, but still there are so many blocks to overcoming those those links and developing those links between medicine and and the humanities everywhere and I I think what you're representing is a very is the very usual experience and I love the way you frame it how have you found trying to get to know or talk to people on the medical side of it as well as patients you know I know that as a practicing clinician that the that these boundaries are very difficult to move through and between
3: so i started out wanting to work on end of life narratives right so after i was done with end of life memoirs i wanted to interview patients nearing their end of life so i had a lovely collaborator who took that leap of faith and invited me to an early morning meeting session, a very big group of physicians. That was an opportunity for me to pitch my idea, uh, my project idea. And I was very new to this, okay? So um, I wasn't great <laughs> during the pitch. I could feel it when um, the Q&A came up. And they were rightly so, I think rightly so. They were suspicious of my intentions. They didn't know what to expect from a humanities scholar. They worry for their patients. <laughs> would they be in good hands um, if they they were interviewed? Um, would I be would I be careful with the more vulnerable patients? Or in fact, these are all vulnerable patients. So how careful am I with them? Um, what kind of experience? What kind of background do I have? So I think these are all very valid questions that I didn't consider when I gave that pitch. It was a really scary experience. with uh, a room full of physicians who are very suspicious of you and asked a lot of questions about what is your background, like what is your experience. This attests to the kind of quality of our doctors as well, like how protective they are of their patients. The need for me to really step up <laughs> and learn more about conducting interviews with patients, especially vulnerable patients, acquiring the kind of expertise that is needed to to interview these patients. Definitely experience like my fair share of yeah, very, very hostile response to to, to my pit pitches.
2: I think you were brave stepping into that lion's den. It's a really interesting experience doing it. I mean, I for the work I've been involved in, I, I'm lucky that because I can step a little bit into both camps, I can act as as a bridge. And and it feels to me that, you know, that humanities scholars interested in interacting in these domains, it's very helpful if you can find somebody who will act as a broker or a bridge or introduce you to help with that that credibility. But my colleagues, I've, I've worked with wonderful colleagues who are astonishingly good physicians and so forth, who who won't understand what it is that motivates my aspects of interest in the medical humanities either, and uh, you have to explain and and justify the value. So it's a very it's a very interesting. Problem And likewise, of course, I, I worry that medicine has the wrong idea about humanities scholars. There was a very nice publication that looked at getting humanities scholars in to teach medical students about giving them better perspectives on, on on the things that you've described, life, justice, illness. And the scholars that were brought in felt that they were kind of just being used in a very instrumental capacity to kind of, as it were, make nicer doctors rather than to teach discipline and it's a really it's a really tricky thing doing that, Bridget. I think you were very brave to go and stand up in that room. Um, but you also managed it. And then and then how do the kind of collaborations go on to being actually able to interview people? How did that work?
3: So I decided to work with less vulnerable participants in order to build up expertise. So I put up a proposal to do a stroke study, but with healthcare professionals. So healthcare professionals are definitely a group of non-vulnerable participants. So that's how I slowly built up my expertise in interviewing and getting a foot into healthcare, getting to know and network with more healthcare professionals. I haven't given a second pitch to interview vulnerable patients. I have not. Um, The stroke study just concluded last year. So the publication I talked about that just came out was on the stroke study. So I'm really still on the way of building up that street cred, (laughs) so to speak.
2: Yeah we've had a nice question which i think is very pertinent from one of our participants thank you rebecca talking about the challenges of finding the right language to um talk to uh, medical practitioners Uh, do you find you have to find new words and new ways of speaking or or how do you find developing a shared language that clinicians uh, will understand i
3: think that's a very good question i've run two workshops so far on medical humanities and really the introduction to medical humanities. There are certain terms that healthcare professionals use that tell me their beliefs in what the medical system is about what medicine is about that differs from my disciplinary knowledge of understanding of these terms so for example the term universal is probably very widely accepted as a word denoting uh, fairness equality right universal but in my discipline universality is very problematic we're thinking about so the, the idea of universal kind of erases or smooths away the differences or hides the differences, conceal the differences that are really more important from human to human, between humans, than universality. Terms like that, conceptual misalignments so from my understanding to their understanding so I, i've had to navigate this and also to address them at these workshops to clarify that oh and and terms like humanities humanism humanistic they all sound very similar but they're in fact very different and have a lot of different implications i feel that these workshops um and some, sometimes classes i also teach a gerontology course here in the School of Social Science. These workshops and classes allow me to clarify um, these terms with the healthcare professionals and they lead me to a better understanding of their perspective and I hope that they've gained a new perspective after they walk out of my classes.
1: It's one of the key issues, I think, that we are also investigating in this podcast, right? You know, the interaction and the encounter between humanities and medicine and I think language is part of the the challenge and also medicine and humanities in their day jobs I think are probably doing fundamentally different things in fundamentally different ways and medical professions often you know have very little time and need to make life and death decisions whereas the way humanities works is often slower and you need that kind of slowness of pace to really be able to do the work that humanities does it comes to a point where where humanities does almost need to justify itself on the terms of another discipline like medicine is that possible or like what do you say then because i think people in humanities do feel like humanities can make a contribution to medicine even though it's a different field like what do you consider like the most important discoveries and achievements of your own research and and of the field broadly and how do you pitch them
3: just don't go back to your, your the first part of your question, I think the part on time. I think that's a that, that's a recurring issue that keeps coming up. Right? Humanity scholars, oh, like you teach close reading, that's all very well and good. Close reading is great, but do we have time? to practice narrative competence like when we are listening to our patients like do we close read watch out for figurative language and we don't uh, so that that keeps coming up right and when we teach close reading and i'm about and i'm going to teach one next week in fact to a group of physicians even, even the workshop itself, right? even the text itself has to be a short one because we have limited time um, to run the workshop. Um, so I know that the, the question keeps coming up, the problem issue with time. I think that what's important is to find a compromise, uh, a middle ground when we are teaching, close reading. In terms of course materials, I choose short stories in order to work within the allotted time that we have. But when it comes to practical application, I always tell my students that, After you've practiced close reading enough, it really will come quite instinctively. I mean, as you would know, data, right, when it comes to interpretation, close reading, after years of practice, it's like second nature to us. We don't really need to think about, oh, this is an illusion (laughs) or or this is a motif. It just comes to us quite quickly. So it takes practice. Sorry, what was your second question? (laughs)
1: I guess it was about making that pitch to an audience who is not trained in humanities and to kind of get that audience to see the value of humanities or like the biggest achievements, like maybe of your own research or, or of the field.
3: When you say biggest achievement, I think the intersection of arts, humanities humanities, and health's greatest achievement date is its foregrounding of multiple perspectives and lived experiences. In other words, human subjectivity. I think for too long, scientific objectivity has been pitted against human subjectivity. So an interdisciplinary field of medical humanities would provide this space to demonstrate how different perspectives from key stakeholders of a disease, while often lay people could inform medical ethics, education, and clinical practice. So for example, illness memoirs are pockets of space for authors and readers to relate in a transformative way. In fact, drawing on um, Emmanuel Labinas' philosophy of the other, the book I'm working on right now, The Values of Patient Stories, is an articulation of illness narratives transformative relational value. This idea of um, the other, I feel, is, is very important. Studying the accounts of illness, is studying subjectivity. And to me, at least, it attests to um, Levinas's reconceptualization of Arthur Rimbaud's idea that I is another. That is, we form a deeper understanding of what it means to be human through the suffering of another. And also, Rita Felsky's assertion that recognizing ourselves in a text is not identification, um, but a recognition of our limits of knowing and knowability, the perception of otherness within the self and that self-perception is almost always mediated by the other. So this, I think, um, will have very wide implications on our understanding of professional relationships, um, whether it's among healthcare workers or healthcare workers, patient-family caregiver relations. So I would think that the greatest achievement to date is the foregrounding of human subjectivity.
2: I think in terms of also justifying close reading, I mean, medicine... At its best, and I I freely accept that this often doesn't happen, involves a lot of close listening. Mm. Everything that we can do to understand, if you're in in an interaction with a person for whom you are providing care, I mean, we're always taught, and I know doctors do this terribly, that the first thing to do is to listen. The act of close and deep listening that respects and understands where a person has come from, lots of you know, the cultural nuances, the background, and hearing the space between the words and the words used is fundamental to creating that holistic sense of understanding from which you can move forward addressing fears, illness, and needs. And in a way, it's it's a parallel of the close reading you're closely reading a situation that you really need to pay attention to and that becomes at its best an instinctual skill in the same way that you've described it so i think you can sell these as different tools to clinicians to facilitate a close listening and um, that can be done actually at speed because you develop that instinctual skill
3: that's a good idea i could use that next week <laughs>
2: So um, we're, I think, slowly drawing towards the end end of time. I mean, do you want to highlight any other particular uh, challenges and difficulties delivering this kind of work um, that you've come across and perhaps how you've begun to overcome them? Is there anything else that we haven't covered from your work with clinicians and other uh, humanities scholars so far?
3: I do want to highlight my hopes for the future. My hopes for the future in the spirit of medical humanities is really more collaboration between medical researchers, educators and humanities scholars. I think that humanities scholars cannot do this alone. And medical researchers or educators who wish to pursue medical humanities cannot do this alone alone. Uh, without a humanities education. Notable figures like Rita Sharon um, has a PhD in in English literature, right? And she's a practicing physician as well. So that that's a different story. <laughs> I'm talking about how uh, physicians with no background of the humanities don't go about doing this alone. Engage a humanities scholar and let's see what we can come up with. I think that more humility on both sides is needed. Develop better training programs, build better healthcare systems, and ultimately provide better care. Yeah, so that's what I would like to add to the conversation.
1: We have a, a question, I think, which is very interesting. And it's about I think bringing us back to where you started as, a bit as well. You started with Beckett, which is obviously mm-hmm. kind of literature. And then we, we talked a lot about illness narratives people writing about their illness, not necessarily literature. So this question talks about, you know, is there is there a continuing divide between literary studies and illness narratives, seen strictly as non-fiction memoir life stories? So do you apply same methods, same theory to fiction and the novel as you do to illness narratives?
3: No, so so there's this huge field, life writing research that takes uh, a very literary approach to to illness memoirs, to memoirs, autobiographies, not just illness memoirs. Illness memoirs is really a subgenre. To researchers who are interested in life writing, of course they will see the value in memoirs and autobiographies and biographies. But at least within my immediate circle, <laughs> my my colleagues. Uh, they work mainly with fictional works. So, like I said, pure humanities are pure literary works that are fictional and not a subgenre. I I think they would see that non-fiction works are very different from literary works. Of course, they are different, right? Um, But my approach to non-fiction works like the illness memoirs continue to be a very literary approach because I, I do see literary value in many of them especially those who are well-written. You know, just as there are novels and plays that are written by good writers and bad writers, there are well-written memoirs that are very literary as well. To me, I do not privilege one over the other. Um, but for some, I can understand why they would do so. But if you're really interested in this, um, go and have a look at life writing. There are many different approaches to life writing research.
2: And I find it very interesting as well when you see the other side of illness memoirs. I mean, I I often think of Javi Carell's Illness Cry of the Flesh, where she is taking an incredibly incisive, brave, intellectual view of her own illness and journey, doing that kind of combination of beautiful writing, high-quality analysis, exploration of ideas, and theory all at the same time it's 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 astonishing when you see it done well you've shared with us just so beautifully with a lot of humility but also shown really clearly i think how your scholarship and your understanding of your field translates into incredibly valuable and meaningful terms with which you can then apply those to medical humanities and to begin to offer engagement with medicine i really thank you for that i think that's been humble erudite and really very powerful,
3: you, you.
1: I have a, f- a final question, actually. And it, at the beginning, you were referring to a distinction between medical humanism and medical humanities, and I think it came up again. And I wonder if by way of getting your take on what medical humanities is for you, you, you it, it sounds like this is an important distinction you want to make, and maybe this is something you would like to tell us about as we go to a close.
3: So my understanding of humanism, and by extension, medical humanism, is uh, a valorization of Technology, logic, reason, nothing wrong with all of that. Of course, um, the primacy of the human when we think about medicine, right? So, this is a very traditional understanding of humanism, the valorization of reason, the insistence that a religion shouldn't be included in the equation. My issue with this um, is who defines how we define the human like who decides how we define the human the inclination towards universality is very problematic to me um, at least and and this is Osler William Osler is 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 an opponent as well right Um, against uh, humanism right humanism is regarded as this salvation narrative um, of medicine right Medical humanism is here to save the day against dehumanization of medicine. This narrative is old. Its inclination towards universality deserves critical attention because I think that humans should be defined by differences more than their similarities. The insistence on similarities is a very dangerous idea because the people who decide uh, what are the common traits that should be valorized as the human essence, as what defines the human? Who are these people? Why are they in the privileged position to define what being human needs? So medical humanism, um, with its inclination towards unif- this, this narrative of universality and the salvation narrative, to me is very problematic. Medical humanities is not medical humanism because by virtue of it being constituted by so many different disciplines that provide so many multiple perspectives on different lived realities, it cannot be equated with medical humanism uh, because it offers us so many so many diverse and rich perspectives on what it means to be living in this world as a human. That's a very big difference between medical humanities as an interdisciplinary field and medical humanism as, as an old
1: perspective that could potentially be dangerous if perpetuated. I think that brings us perfectly right to the end. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's been great.
3: Thanks for having me. Thank you, it's it's a pleasure.
1: Thank
0: you again, Michelle. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Season 5. In the next episode, Dieter and Ian will be in conversation with two guests. Professor Guo Leping is Professor of English and the Director of the Centre for Narrative Medicine at Peking University. And Professor Vivian Lowe is Professor in History at University College London and the convener of UCL's China Centre for Health and Humanity. Dieter and Ian will be talking with Professor Guo and Professor Lowe about cross-cultural, medical and health humanities and their collaborative work on film and the Chinese medical humanities. To stay up to date with the latest news about our live events and about the podcast, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Convo Arts Health. This episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.